Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast, an extension of doodlekisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. Doodlekisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners, wannabe owners, and the Doodle Curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, and dogs in general. There is a lot of misinformation when it comes to doodles and allergies. As soon as somebody mentions their doodle dog is itchy or licking their paws or experiencing frequent ear infections, they tend to get all sorts of well-meaning advice from other doodle owners, specifically advice to change their dog's food. There's also a running myth that doodles don't do well with chicken. So I decided I needed to interview an expert in this area to get the scoop on what itchiness in dogs really means, what the most common causes are, and what owners should do about it. The expert I'm bringing you today is Dr. Joy Barbett, a veterinary dermatologist. Dr. Barbett is a 1981 graduate of Washington State University College of Veterinary Medicine. She has carried out and published clinical research in the area of animal allergies and has taught students and residents clinical dermatology at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. After retirement, she consulted for True Panion Pet Insurance as a claims evaluator for dermatology cases, and now she's enjoying the semi-retired life in the United Kingdom. In this episode, we will discuss the most common cause of itchiness for dogs that very few dog owners suspect, why food allergies are less common than environmental allergies, why middle-aged dogs are more likely than younger dogs to have a food allergy, and much more. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Dr. Barbette. Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast. Hello, Adina. Glad to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. I've been wanting an expert in this topic for a long time. But first, as is our tradition on this podcast, tell us your history with dogs. Oh, well, I grew up with dogs, cats, and later in my teen years, I had horses. So um, I had a- have an animal background. And then um, as an adult, we had three Labradors and probably my favorite breed. Oh, <laughs> they're sweet. I'm a fan of labs. Yeah. Do you have any dogs or pets right now? Not right now. I'm kind of in an indefinite, indeterminate stage of my life. So I'm living in the UK for an indeterminate length of time. And I did not really want to get in a position where I either had to rehome an animal or try to transport it back to the US. Um, so I have kind of gone on an animal fast, which is is really hard sometimes. But uh, I try to make friends at least with every kitty cat I see on the street. And some of them will and some won't, of course. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is there much of a quarantine period when it comes to um, moving dogs from the UK to the US or the other way? No, not not really anymore because the UK when they became part of the EU and now going out so who knows what's going to happen but um, they were rabies free and and that was what was creating all the quarantine issues as the UK is rabies free I think now they probably allow your dog in and I haven't really explored that but if it's got a good history of vaccination and and so forth um, and health health certificate and all that sort of thing so you can 
bring them this way. And, and it isn't the six month quarantine anymore, but the papers work all has to be correct. Mm-hmm. Do you notice any difference in dog ownership in the UK where you're at versus, you know, in the United States, any different attitude or dog friendliness? No, not that different. There's lots of dogs here. And it's just that a lot of them live in much smaller spaces unless you're a city dweller in the U.S. But even in the villages and things are much more indoors, I think, much of the time. They don't have as big gardens or yards for the dog to play in and be Mm -hmm. outside. But they still do well. (laughs) They still do well. I know. I think sometimes people think you have to have three acres to own a dog, but they're not going to do a whole lot by themselves in the three acres. Yeah, it just depends on how much you want to be out taking them for walks. And that's what we see is a lot of dog people walking dogs mm-hmm. here because they need that extra exercise. The gardens aren't big enough to give them. I had my dogs on five acres when we lived in Florida. And so they got plenty of exercise, really. Yeah. When there's multiple dogs, I think it's a lot easier for them to get exercise. But if you just have one dog on five acres, they may or may not, you know, want to do anything but be next to you. Think about Labradors. They really like to chase things. So we have loads of squirrels Uh and birds and and various things. So, yeah, there was plenty to, to interest the dog. Yeah. That certainly makes a difference. I have one dog who's very squirrely and another one who would maybe, you know, get up, walk a little toward the squirrel and give up. And they're both half lab. So how did you decide to get into veterinary medicine? I'm, you know, lots of people love animals, but what led you to go that route? Well, I had such an animal oriented um, young life. Um, However, I really, I was a good student, but I really didn't like school. I hated it. I was bored. Um, Nothing sparked my interest while I was in high school, but because I had nothing better to do, I went to uh, community college, um, dropped out for a quarter, and then um, got some lousy summer jobs and said, oh, I've got to do better than this. (laughs) And the boredom. <laughs> so then I decided I would go ahead and apply, you know, finish my pre-vet studies and apply to vet school. And so I graduated from WSU in 1981 and then uh, went on to general practice for a bit and some research work and various things. And then ended up in Florida with the opportunity to do a residency. I could choose between internal medicine or dermatology, and I hadn't really ever thought about dermatology residencies before because I was in the very early days of such. I hadn't heard much about that. Most of them were on the East Coast, so you really didn't hear that much. And um, I really realized that I'm a visual person. I like to see things. I don't really like to palpate abdomens and say, ooh, is that the liver? <laughs> or, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I like to see what I'm treating. A high percentage of patients in private or in general practice have dermatologic conditions. And um, the, there's a lot fewer patient deaths in dermatology, which is really nice. I did, you know, it's not that much fun and it's better flexibility. And um, probably the other thing that, that played a role in that is my first year in general practice was the year Parvo hit the streets. Oh. And all we were doing all summer long was treating oh, multitudes of cases of parvoviral enteritis. And I didn't want to see another case of diarrhea in my life. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you. (laughs) 
one of the reasons I wanted you on here um, is to talk about atopic dermatitis. But what I'm noticing in various pet dog discussion forums, so very much in doodle forums, is that as, as soon as an owner notices their dog seems itchy or has any signs of allergies or you know, itch, I guess, they assume that the dog is allergic to their food and they start changing food and ingredients. Um, so aside from parasites or mites or anything like that, what's the most common condition related to itchiness in dogs? Okay. Aside from those, it really is atopic dermatitis. Okay. Usually, probably 85 to 90% of those cases are entirely environmental allergens. Wow. So 89% of itchy dogs that don't have some parasite on them probably have atopic dermatitis. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a bigger number than I expected. Um, so when it comes to allergies, how likely is it that a dog is itchy due to a food component allergy versus another allergen? It can vary. Actually, um, we always used to think the itchiest dogs were food allergic, but it isn't all, that isn't always the case. Um, so, you know, I think any, any level of itch, it might be more the specific areas where they itch and the age of onset, usually middle-aged to older dogs, if they suddenly start itching and it isn't parasite like fleas and mange mites and things related, then... It, you know, one of the things you might think of besides underlying endocrine diseases developing or something like that is that they maybe have developed a food allergy. But that is definitely the middle-aged to older dog. Okay. Uh, your younger dogs, um, you know, like I say, 80%, probably to, to 90% of those are not going to be really significantly food-related. You get some of these environmental allergies that may be food exacerbated. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it helps in our treatment of very complex cases to put them on a, a novel diet uh, to help control all the things that might be causing the dog to itch along with. And we do a lot of that sort of treatment. All our dogs get treated for flea allergy and get flea treatments um, as part of the treatment for the atopic dermatitis because itch is additive. So every little thing that happens, a secondary infection, because they're allergic, they get into some fleas or there's some food that might be giving them just a tiny niggle, but wouldn't by itself make the dog itch if the dog wasn't already itchy. All those things, you just do things to calm the inflammation, settle that immune system down. Okay. And you mentioned middle-aged dogs are more likely to have a food allergy versus younger dogs. Why is that? It's probably related more to, I think food allergy, it doesn't develop that commonly in dogs. It's a much lower level, less frequent allergy than these others. The younger dogs are in a stage of their immune system being educated. So as they're coming up through puppyhood and, and early into young adult years, they're encountering all these new novel allergens out in the, the world, all these different pollens and um, molds, uh, house dust mites, uh, danders, maybe 
stuff from the carpet, even, you know, little bits, uh, cotton linen, just is one of the things that some people actually test for. So, you know, just cotton up fabrics and things. And they're learning whether they're supposed to respond and ignore it in a way that ignores that and they become tolerant or whether they're going to make a, an inflammatory response to that and they become allergic. Okay, so all that education is going on early in life. And so that's why you see that the disease usually is manifested by three years of age with a little, you know, you can always give it a little six month kind of overlap there, but it's definitely a young dog disease, whereas the older dog, the dog is more likely it is going to be a food allergy. I see. So your six-month-old puppy that's scratching and itching probably isn't the dog to start changing foods on. No, no, not unless you you have something historically that really indicates mm-hmm. that, that maybe this one thing could be a problem. And that's very rarely that we would see that. Do we have any knowledge or are there studies being conducted to figure out like why some dogs being exposed to a certain environment will develop allergies versus just be okay with, you know, dust and... Um, yeah. Well, dust mites. <laughs> dust mites, yeah, not mites themselves. The only things we really have are that the, there is probably a genetic component in looking at pedigree analysis. Uh, it hasn't, we haven't been able to show anything at this point with the genetic work that's been done to say, well, all these dogs that have atopic dermatitis have this pattern of genes uh, versus other dogs, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it, it's that we can't tell, but by pedigree analysis, it could be up to 50% of the causality. Hmm. Um, again, they don't all even have the same immune profile in their production of cellular mediators that tell another cell to activate or deactivate or, you know, produce another substance. So they don't have the same pattern within a breed or between breeds or between individuals. They're all different. It's a very, because it's a very complex immune system Mm -hmm. and immune response that occurs. So, um, no, we, we can't really tell. Then there's the other things, environmental Hygiene hypothesis, it's out there, you know, first came out for people. And we're noticing that, that people in countries where the, they were actually still having intestinal parasites, there seemed to be lower levels of asthma and other allergies in those people. They started looking at babies, um, babies and children raised on a farm with farm animals or around pets, particularly dogs, seem to have a lower rate of asthma and allergies in in later life. Um, Also, there are things about how they're born, cesarean section versus a natural birth, and where and how they're getting their intestinal microbiome, where it's coming from, and if it's a normal, regular birth, they're getting the appropriate education from their mother. If it's a cesarean section, 
somebody has to intervene at some time and supplement, you know, shortly after birth and try to expose them. And it's turned out that it is not birth canal that that microbiome needs to come from, but it is actually from the GI tract, mother. Huh. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's quite complicated, all <laughs> things. So on the farms, which you've got manure. Mm-hmm. So you put a dog out on a farm in the manure. You see horse manure every day and rolling around in the dirt. And he's got a little forest and some rotting trees. He's going out there and eating grubs and beetles out of the rotten trees. But he's getting microbiome. Uh-huh. And that microbiome in the gastrointestinal tract will train your immune system and help teach you tolerance and what what to put up with and what to react to. So that can be quite important. Mm-hmm. And actually, research dogs that have been that are bred specifically for studying atopic dermatitis are often um, rehomed after a certain number of times that they've use them for, you know, trying to figure out the immune response and trying to figure out what things might, might help them. And they are sensitized to house dust mite, and they've been rehomed on, on a farm that I, I know of. And um, they start rolling in the manure, eating the manure. <laughs> and actually, their clinical signs diminish quite drastically wow. after a few months. It takes some time. But yeah. they do improve, yeah, and they do much better. It's so interesting, like the pros and cons of having a house dog in a clean environment. You know, like how wonderful that the dog lives with us, but look at what it's missing out. And yet, we don't want to. The answer isn't to send your dog to the backyard with a cow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be <laughs> <laughs> buy some cow manure for puppies to help them. <laughs> Develop. In a route, you know. Yeah, <laughs> or, someone's going to start selling this, you know, like microbiome, um, yeah, bovine yeah. microbiome. Well, and there's talk about that. And actually, in this research colony where they treated puppies and their mothers during the pregnancy and then the puppies afterwards as well with a particular probiotic, um, those puppies became very difficult to actually make allergic. They hmm really just couldn't get those dogs to respond. And all the other dogs that didn't get the probiotic, all they could easily make them allergic just by painting house dust mite on their skin. Wow. So it's, it's quite striking, you know, to think of all the complex things that go together mm-hmm. to create the allergic animal. So you may have an animal that has the immunologic tendency but if a skin barrier function is good, they'll never become allergic. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's the other thing. Skin barrier is a big oh. deal here. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason is, is because if those allergens can't penetrate the skin barrier and activate the, the living keratinocytes underneath and the, the immune cells in the skin, you're not going to have an allergy. There. Interesting. And do we know much about what makes skin barriers stronger versus weaker? Some things, some things. And there are, genetic, there are genetic defects known in people. They haven't actually shown them in dogs, but there are some proteins that, that can be deficient in some humans with these allergies. Um, certainly not all, but 
that is, you know, a missing protein can be quite important because it's to do with the maturation of the outer layers of the skin that because they become hard and cornified, the cells are actually dead, but they stay there in a layer cemented together with fats and things and that that makes a barrier and then they gradually slough off as other cells move up and mature and take their place. So um, you've got all those possible things. Another thing that can affect skin barrier is actually inflammation itself. Mm. Mm-hmm. So a good example of this is house dust mite in that these mites can actually damage the skin barrier. It's not actually the mite, it's, it's, the, it's their fecal material that has enzymes that damage the skin barrier and activate the exact right mediators to trigger the kind of immune reaction you see in allergy. So, you know, that on its own with the dog that, that is got the immune system that will act in an allergic way as well, they can trigger allergy in those mm. dogs. So um, as far as our house being pristine environment, no, it's full of allergens. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to keep it dust-free, but not germ-free. <laughs> well, and you can't, keep, you can't even keep yeah. be rid of house dust mite because right. they live on shed skin cells, and we shed skin cells at an enormous rate every day, yeah, and we don't can. even know it. Yeah. That's and, so interesting. Yeah, you can't get rid of them. Well, how are allergies different in dogs than humans? Because if a person is allergic to peanuts, let's say, they're going to have a, an anaphylactic response, whereas dogs don't have that to the allergen from the food they're allergic to. Well, once in a while, you get dogs with anaphylactic reactions. I'd say it's probably rarer than in people. Mm-hmm. It can occur when we have them on immunotherapy. They might get it from having a vaccination. So the little puppies whose head and, and mouth and oral cavities swell up around the eyes after vaccination, that, can, that is an anaphylactic reaction. So uh, they do have them, but some of our more chronic allergic reactions, such as hay fever and asthma in people, we don't see a lot of in dogs. There mm-hmm. are dogs that get a respiratory allergy, and there are some of our dogs with atopic dermatitis who actually will have a runny nose and runny eyes along with that. So, um, but they don't get them to the same degree as people do, whereas the dog seems to be the skin and people with an anaphylactic reaction get a respiratory problem. They can't mm-hmm. breathe. Dogs generally have a GI problem. Suddenly they're vomiting and having diarrhea out of blue and you don't know why. And mm-hmm. That's their anaphylactic reaction. Then they collapse and, and you know, you've got to get them somewhere really fast. Mm-hmm. But it, it's all GI rather than respiratory in the dog. Interesting. And so the a food reaction in a dog that's skin related, is that not an IgE, right? Like the anaphylactic is an IgE mediated? IgE, yes. Okay. And, and although some of our food reactions may be in part IgE, and I have actually seen hives, which is IgE, from some dogs that have gone out and eaten the horse's grain or something like that, but it's not very often we actually see hives in dogs. It's really uh-huh. rare. But um, the, the kinds of reactions we see with food can look like atopic dermatitis and may be part of this, at least the same syndrome, but 
I think atopic, and everybody's beginning to think atopic dermatitis, although IgE is involved, that it may not be the primary trigger. It's either a uh, bystander reaction where this IgE is being produced, and if it's there, it may be perpetuating the problem and making... it's worse, but it isn't really the initial reaction. Mm. And it's even more complicated than IgE because as these things become more chronic, it switches from IgE involvement primarily towards more of what we call a cell-mediated immunity involvement. Mm. So with chronicity, it becomes also harder to use immunotherapy for. Um, because it's hard to reverse that cell-mediated reaction, harder to reverse that one than the IgE-mediated reaction. Hmm. Interesting. And so when we talk about atopic dermatitis versus allergies as a general term, how do they overlap? Allergies is a pretty broad term, yeah. okay? There are like four major types of hypersensitivity or allergic reactions that we see in immunology. And probably type one and type four are most important in our pets um, as for causing our chronic skin diseases and things. And type one is the IgE response. Type four is the cell-mediated immunity response. And then there's a couple others in between that are less common. Um, A type two reaction is other antibodies and and a disease in the dog that we see that's an autoimmune disease, pemphigus foliaceus is more in that category. And then there's a type three, which is called serum sickness, but is also the reaction more like the reaction you would see in horses who have suffered strangles, uh, which is an infection with streptococcus equi. And um, it causes immune complexes to, de- okay. to form and they tend to block up little capillaries and cause problems that way. So um, those are our main allergic immune responses. The general public uses the term allergy really to broadly refer to any adverse reaction to mm-hmm. any. <laughs> okay, I'm allergic to that. Well, yeah, maybe it makes me sick, but it actually wasn't an immunologic reaction. It was irritant. It was toxic. It was contaminated. Okay, uh-huh. so. Yeah, that, that's allergy. Okay, then we have this atopic dermatitis, or the term atopy, and that refers primarily to IgE-mediated immune disease, uh, allergic disease. And so um, that's where the, and that was the original feeling that it was all an IgE-related disease, and it caused degranulation of mast cells and release of all these inflammatory mediators that not only recruit in other inflammation, but they would cause itch and things like that. Well, actually, you can inject a dog with histamine, which is what is released from the mast cell and why you use antihistamines. They don't itch. They don't itch there. It's not actually a mediator of itch in dogs. So you have to have something else happening. Mm-hmm. So um, basically, you know, atopic disease would include things like anaphylaxis and hives and, um, and the, you know, possibly the atopic dermatitis, but it's much more complex. 
um, flea allergy to dermatitis and insect bite um, hypersensitivities also would be um, IgE mediated. Okay. What are the symptoms um, of atopic dermatitis? How would someone even get a clue that maybe their dog has this if they notice itchiness as maybe or something else? Well, the itchiness is number one. <laughs> and, and, you know, this, this being atopic dermatitis, and sometimes it's pollens, and sometimes it's foods, and sometimes it's house dust mites, it can be seasonal or non-seasonal. So you just don't go that it's seasonal, and therefore it's atopic dermatitis. Non-seasonal occurs with house dust mites, and things like that. So there's year-round allergens that are possible, and also with food. But itchiness, so scratching, licking, chewing, rubbing, and rolling. And all of those are manifestations of itchiness. Redness, and it can be, you know, kind of a moderately pink to an intense red, plus or minus a rash. Sometimes you might see a little bit of rash on the abdomen, on the hairless part of the abdomen or something. Just a few little pinpoint red spots. Um, but that isn't always there. Hair loss. Okay, hair loss from scratching, hair loss from secondary infections. Um, recurrent skin and ear infections, okay. very important. So after one or two recurrences that occur within, you know, a fairly short period of time, few months, um, I'd be starting to suspect that you were dealing with an allergy. And then the hot spots, those pyotraumatic events where they've scratched until, well, they've made it raw, gotten it infected, the hair is gone, it's oozing, and it's really painful, actually. So um, those are the major symptoms. And then we look at which areas are involved. And it tends to be kind of a disease of the underside, but not entirely. So we get the head. Our ear, the ears, actually the inside of the ear flap and down into the vertical ear canal, you, you'll see redness as a primary uh, symptom, plus the itchiness. Also, lips, chin, and around the eyes. So it's all areas that are less well-haired in that effect. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the trunk, uh, often, of course, the, the underside of the neck, the armpits the abdomen, and the perineum, that area around and between the anus and the genitals. Sometimes that's affected. On the limbs, it'll be the front or flexure surface of the elbows. Um, also down that front limb, quite often, dogs will sometimes chew down those limbs as well. But paws, licking of the paws, pododermatitis, we call that, and it'll be between the toes and the the paw pads and so forth. And then also the inner thighs will be affected. And those are the most common areas. Um, once they get secondary infection, the whole entire dog can be affected. And, and certainly mm. in the subtropical climates in the Southeast, um, you see that quite frequently, more than you'd like. So those are the basic things to look for. Okay. So it's, it's diagnosed by location of itching and other obvious symptoms that you can see, signs and symptoms. Is there a blood test or any other kind of testing that a vet would do? There's no blood test, but okay. yeah. For inflammation maybe or? Clinical diagnosis. So you take your dog to the vet because you're saying, oh, this sounds like atopic dermatitis or something or allergies. 
the vet is going to make the should be making this diagnosis by exclusion and using history and clinical signs. So the onset, six months to three years of age, except in dogs that move, say, from a fairly low allergen, northern climate, seasonal allergen kind of place to the southeast. Um, and some of those dogs will fall apart within three months. And maybe the owner really didn't have, you know, it was clinical to subclinical, but very mild when they were in the north. And then suddenly, oh, this seems to have come out of the blue. But, you know, that would be the only time I would look at an older dog and say, hmm, this could well be atopic dermatitis. It's just that you've moved to a climate now where you have 10 times more house dust mite exposure, you have 20 times more flea exposure, and a lot more pollen. And the pollen season is a lot longer. So mm -hmm. that would be a time I would think of that. But then the disease pattern and the lesions, we do di some diagnostic tests. We want to get a baseline and make sure we're not missing things like ringworm, which isn't normally itchy, but once in a while, uh, depending on the organism, it could be. Um, sarcoptic mange, we'll do scrapings for those, but even in cases of sarcoptic mange, your scrapings are only successfully finding mites in about 50% of cases. So you'll still have to do a trial treatment. You look at for demodectic mange because I've seen a bunch of dogs with generalized demodex that also have secondary infections and they itch just as badly as any dog I've ever seen with atopic dermatitis. We do skin cytology and look for bacterial and yeast infections. So we do all those things. And then <laughs> we, we will treat for infections and things. We'll put the dogs on flea control. Uh, we'll do that trial treatment on sarcoptic mange and we'll do a dietary elimination trial just so that we don't miss that food allergy. Mm -hmm. you know, there's not many of them, but we'll usually try to to do that during those first eight to 12 weeks of even seeing the dog. Usually by the time they've been treated for infections and the fleas are under control, um, if there's a, any flea issue at all, and it depends on the region of the country you're in, then um, we may get them down to, oh, what, what is the baseline itch of the actual atopic dermatitis with all the other additive problems out of the way and um, we may be able to ready at that time um, to say yep he's got atopic dermatitis and then plan treatment um, and the only time we use allergy testing is if we're going to do immunotherapy mm -hmm. which ideally you, you do in most all of the moderate to severe cases that are non-seasonal mm -hmm. um, and some of the seasonal uh, moderate to severe cases. But when a blood serum sample gets sent off for testing or an intradermal test is done and it's taken, you know, has positive reactions, well, we can intradermal test any normal dog and get some positive reactions. It can, you know, and there'll be one or two or several, but maybe those dogs just don't itch. Mm -hmm. They're not actually having clinical signs. And we don't know exactly why that is, but that's the case. As far as serum allergy testing goes, there's a lot of um, less qual lower quality groups that do that. But there are also some really good groups that 
do reliable, repeatable type um, testing. And um, although we don't think it's the best test, because when we do allergy tests, we're actually looking at the testing to see how much IgE is bound to the mast cells in the skin, whereas serum testing is just, just circulating IgE. We don't know always, you know, what it means. Um, and, but anyway, those help us decide positive reactions in dogs who already have confirmed the diagnosis clinically, then we say, okay, we know what to put in the immunotherapy because these are at least the things we know they're producing IgE to, and we think that's a bystander, if not a cause of the disease. Mm-hmm. Okay? okay? Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Adina Pearson Nutrition. That's right. When I'm not talking doodle, I'm helping women of all ages find peace and joy with food. I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in eating disorders, emotional eating, and breaking free from yo-yo dieting. If you're tired of food controlling your life or simply feel confused about what, when, or how you're supposed to eat, I can help you restore peace, joy, and confidence to your eating. While I'm based in Washington, telehealth technology allows me to work with clients through many areas of the United States. And if you do live in Washington, I accept most insurance plans. Visit Adina Pearson Nutrition online to learn more at adinapearson.com. Don't spend another day fighting with food and your body. Reach out today to start your journey toward a healthy life that's free of food worries. You go to great lengths to take care of your doodle's health. Don't forget to invest in your health and happiness too. Now, from what I've heard, and this might not be the case, it seems like a lot of vets miss atopy or misdiagnose it. You know, um, I don't know what you can, can you speak to that? Is it easy to misdiagnose and is it something that you should go to a dermatologist for if you have a high suspicion? I think a lot of vets um, are quite capable, you know, in general practice to um, diagnose and treat seasonal, mild, uncomplicated cases. And they often will do just fine. And it's usually because seasonal cases only require intermittent therapy. The mild cases are less likely to become complicated by secondary infections and other kinds of trouble. And um, when they're when they're year round, they're much much worse to deal with um, that way because they tend to get more infections and get very complicated after a time. I think you know the experience that a boarded dermatologist has with having seen. Um, such a variety of presentations of atopic dermatitis and secondary infections, etc., just puts them in a little better position to make a quicker diagnosis. Often in clinical practice, too, you're going to see a multitude of vets, and nobody's really looking back through that record to say, oh, gosh, this has been going on. Oh, this is repeated and repeated. And that's just one of the, the things that I think happens in general, in a busy general practice, that if different people have seen that pet, mm-hmm. none of them picked up on it because that was the first time they saw that pet. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of veterinarians do, do quite a fine job with, with the milder cases. I 
think with more complicated, it's a lifelong affliction. You need to get it under control the earliest possible point you can. It's much easier to control if you start immunotherapy earlier in life, okay? Um, once it's really become severely chronic or these are dogs that have had it for the last 10 years, immunotherapy is not as likely to work well. Um, but it will work probably in anywhere, the, the estimates are 60 to 80% of cases. So somewhere around 70% time, it may improve the dog by 50%, okay? It may not be all of it, but it can improve and make it easier to control. Okay, so immunotherapy is one common treatment. What other treatments as far as like medication and you know, are there not home remedies that make it go away, but are there sort of like supplements or things that also help? We use fish oil supplements at fairly high doses quite frequently, mm -hmm. um, especially mild cases. And there are these topical essential oils out there that are made specifically for dogs. You don't want to just go after anything anybody's calling an essential oil. Mm -hmm. uh, get the things that have been made and tested in dogs. Um, because we don't know what toxicities my dogs might have to some of these things that might be fine on humans. Mm -hmm. So we use antihistamines, over-the-counter antihistamines. Um, they don't work very well. I think their best effect is actually that they're sedating. Okay. <laughs> might help the owner get a night's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but no, just because the dog is scratching less, it sleeps a little better and things. But you know, as far as having dramatic effect, no. But in mild cases, it can be useful. Mm -hmm. uh, and then things to try to avoid allergen, you know, allergens is you know using mild emollient shampoos frequently, maybe once or twice a week or after a particularly long day out in the woods or someplace where there are a lot of pollens and things around. And, it, and you may only have to do that seasonally if that's all the problem there is. But you want to kind of pull those, wash those allergens off so that they're not, you know, actually creating another immune reaction in the skin. So those are things you can do. Sometimes even the sun, there's UV suits and things like that. And take your dog out in a UV suit and uh -huh. <laughs> put a hat on him or something. <laughs> you know, there are some things like that you can do. Um, beyond that, for over-the-counter kind of stuff, there isn't really a lot that I think will be effective and mm -hmm not really worth doing, but those things, and then making sure your fleas are under control if you're in a particularly bad flea zone. And I think more of the U.S. is becoming more flea-ridden as yeah. forms. So, uh -huh. Okay. So immunotherapy, some medications, fish oil in certain doses, avoiding allergies and kind of cleaning up the dog as needed. Um, yeah, and that's just for, you know, the, the immunotherapy, I wouldn't even recommend for a mild seasonal case. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not even for a moderate seasonal case, but uh, if, the, if it's more of a moderate case, you may need to start using something cort containing corticosteroids, some prednisone containing topical spray or oral prednisone for that short length of time for which it's required to manage them through the season. And again, you go back. You could use all those other things I mentioned before in the bathing. Mm -hmm. um, 
But those cases that, that really, you know, the severe complicated cases non, or that they're non moderate non-seasonal cases where you really want to get them to, um, you know, in better controls and not uh, have them get worse over time is, you know, to see a dermatologist. I really recommend that. It'll you'll get a long way with learning how to manage the problem and find out which things, a combination of treatments will work. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the first things usually in any of these that dermatologists ever see is they're all, they all have either pyoderma or yeast infections or both. Okay, mm-hmm. so you've got to take care of those, and they may be in the skin or the ears. You've got to treat those and get those under control. You can use um, other things to get the itch under control, prednisone, higher and more frequent doses. There's also a narrower spectrum drug called Atopica, which is cyclosporine, which just acts on T lymphocytes. You can go even to a narrower yet uh, spectrum drug called Apoquel, the Dermatologist may recommend that, which again blocks another part of the immune system, um, where then it stops the production of the big itch mediator, which is interleukin 31, and in the dog. Um, and probably 75 to 85 percent of dogs will respond very well to that kind of treatment and their itch decreases dramatically. The problem with aquacitinib is it's acting at a level at which they can only give it twice a day for two weeks and then after that it has to be once a day and sometimes once a day isn't enough but if you give it more than that you're risking um, very serious side effects. Okay so um, uh, dropping of blood cell counts and things like that. So you have to be very careful with that drug. There's another one that veterinarians have access to now uh, called Cytopoint, and it actually is an antibody to that itch mediator called IL-31. Um, and that this monoclonal antibody will tie that up, and it's usually given monthly. Mm-hmm. And so you can use all those things uh, to control itch, while you're putting the dog on immunotherapy. So we used to have to wait or keep them on prednisone while to try to get the immunotherapy to work because it will take up to a year for Mm -hmm. immunotherapy to have its full effect. And very often, um, you know, more than six months. Yeah. So We have one member on Doodle Kisses, our website, who has become sort of the resident expert in atopic dermatitis. She had a dog with this and she is always, you know, making a case for people to get the proper diagnosis and treatment. And it, it sounds like it can be pretty intensive depending on the severity of the case and pretty involved and expensive. Yeah. Well, it does add up, but if you, if you look at it over the long term. Mm-hmm. This going to see the dermatologist and going through all this is an, a long-term investment. Okay, up front it's going to be the highest. Mm-hmm. But as that disease comes under control and you manage it better at home, and you can do little things at home to tweak this and that when it flares just a little bit, and you keep it from becoming an infection as well then the cost goes down 
And probably over time, your cost is going to be lower. That's such but a good point. It's a long-term investment that you got to invest up front, not only with your money, uh-huh. but also with effort. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's probably had a child with atopic dermatitis and, or other allergies, it's a lot of work. They know. But, or somebody with psoriasis in the family or something like that. They know these things really are an effort to manage. But once you get things under control, it becomes much easier. And that, it was always true that way too, of flea allergy dermatitis. Um, mm-hmm. But the work and flea control is so much easier now. But back in the day when I first started, flea control was bathing and dipping every week. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, a lot of people found that really <laughs> hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> and the dips weren't all that effective, really. <laughs> and then there was the environmental treatment, which still sometimes has to be done. But, you know, I'd always tell people, okay, the first two months, it's going to be hard work. Mm-hmm. Once things settle down, we get the environment controlled and the dog feeling better and you're getting the you know, fewer fleas jumping on them, all of these different things, it's going to get easier. Yeah. I'd say it's a little longer in the run up with atopic dermatitis and getting it managed in that, you know, you may be managing the itch and things early on, and that helps a lot with quality of life issues, but it's going to take, you know, a few more months to really pull everything together and have it in a really manageable package. It sounds like maybe keeping your house together after a renovation. At first, it's this huge (laughs) investment of time and money, but then you still have to clean your house. It's just not as big of a project every time. Yeah. Daily management (laughs) or weekly or whatever. Okay. I'm I'm wondering... Yeah, it gets better. Good to know. That's good for everybody to know. And, and, you know, if you have, if you're listening and you have questions, we have our resident expert and by resident expert, she is a longtime member of our website who is very knowledgeable and really um, reads a lot in terms of evidence base. So it's not woo. It's not, you know, just give your dog these essential oils type of thing. She really um, knows a lot about what to look for, you know, and the kind of the process and she could be a great support person. So I can link you to the groups where those discussions happen for listeners. I'm wondering real quick, um, is atop- atopic dermatitis ever connected with other conditions? Like, is it often that somebody, a dog with atopic dermatitis also has, you know, other GI things or non-dermatological components? Yeah, well, sometimes we'll see some dogs with atopic dermatitis have, you know, a little more frequency bowel movements, things like that. We may be more suspicious that there's also a food allergy. Mm-hmm. So that's been seen. I've seen dogs with multiple conditions in that they have had flea allergy dermatitis, contact dermatitis, which is type 4 hypersensitivity. They've also been atopic and also have a flea component to that atopic dermatitis. So, um, yeah, they can, a whole bunch of allergies can all occur in the same dog. Doesn't happen very often. Okay. Mm -hmm. That can happen. Certainly GI signs can be linked with that. Um, I haven't 
seen dogs, I haven't seen that many dogs with respiratory allergies and or seen that it's linked. I know there was once a research model for human asthma that involved sensitizing dogs and they would have respiratory symptoms, but hmm. it's not a common thing for dogs. Okay. And I don't, we don't really see any other linkage to other sort of conditions that aren't probably caused iatrogenically by our treatments. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, now, listeners, you know everything that you would ever want to know about atopic dermatitis. And I want to encourage anyone who sees these signs that are dogs to really get a diagnosis before you attempt to change foods. Because you don't want to change... Why, why don't owners... Why shouldn't owners just take it upon themselves to try different foods on their own when they first notice itchiness? basically a waste of time. Mm-hmm. It's unlikely to make that much difference. Um, it might look like it makes a difference in a seasonal case when the season ends and, you know, the dog gets better and you think it was the food. And that's why we, when we do dietary elimination trials, we always re- like to get our owners to re-challenge with the old food so that we can actually see that the itch comes back when we feed them small amounts of the old food. So we really try as often as possible to get owners to do a re-challenge with their old diet. That's mm-hmm. the only way you can know for sure because there right. are so many variables that can occur while you're doing this dietary trial that might have changed something and make it look like it worked when it really didn't. I'd like to add one thing about getting a these more severe atopic dermatitis dogs to a dermatologist and getting things under control. Um, the better you control things, the less secondary infection you get. Our biggest worry is antibiotic resistance mm. with multiple secondary infections. And what the rate of bac- bacterial resistance right now um, is probably 60 to 80 percent of cases seen in specialty practice. Okay, they're the ones that have failed all the treatments that the vet <laughs> tried and, and things like that. And the disease is still out of control. And the infections are out of control because they're antibacterial resistant. And mm-hmm. it's getting hard to find antibiotics that will work. And there's only a few left that, that can be used ethically in the dog. That's some that we have to leave for people we will not use. Most of us will not use vancomycin or linezolid because those really are meant for human staph mm-hmm. infections and their problem with staph aureus is worse than than our problem with staph oh, aureus wow. in in the antibiotic resistance area they have far more drugs they can become resistant to quite quickly um, but they also share these resistant genes with staph aureus and other staph type organisms that are around so mm. Um, and it and it can be dangerous maybe to people whose immune systems don't function well. They may get infected with staph intermedius um, and a bacterial resistance. So you want to reduce the frequency of infection so that you can reduce the frequency of use of antibacterials. Some of the management to reduce the frequency of infection may involve antibacterial rinses, um, antiseptic kind of things very dilute uh, bleach and water kind of stuff or a vinegar and water solution, anything we can do that will reduce the growth bacteria on some of these dogs. And so we'll try to do it topically as much as possible um, because when we start giving oral antibiotics, you start getting resistance. And I imagine with high 
oral antibiotic use, eventually that affects the gut bacteria, and that in turn can cause its own set of problems. Yeah, nobody studied that yet. Yeah, how, how it works in dogs and how, you know which bacteria we don't even know. You know, there there have been proposals out there. People have wanted to do some of these studies, but it's very hard to recruit enough dogs. Um, have them all on similar diets and do all kinds of things like that. It's it's a really hard study to do, yeah. but yeah, it will theoretically. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for being willing to spend this time talking about atopic dermatitis. I hope our listeners will. I know they're going to learn a lot. Um, I just have two quick questions that are unrelated. We don't have time okay. to talk about sebaceous adenitis, but um, just a, a top two topics that. I'm interested in, I think our listeners will be too. Um, we hear a lot about, you know, don't bathe your dogs too frequently because it strips their natural oils and is somehow harmful. And yet at the same time, show dogs get bathed and groomed constantly. So I'm wondering from your expert perspective, is there a problem with bathing dogs, you know, a certain frequency or does it not really matter? I think it depends on what you're bathing them with and why you're bathing them and, and a lot of different things. Dogs with skin disease need frequent bathing, um, probably one to three times a week. And often, you know, if they have infections and things, it's with shampoos that will help with clearing those infections or will help. Some of these dogs are really greasy. You want to get that grease off because actually malassezia, the yeast that dogs get, lives in the greasy stuff on the skin. It likes lipids. It's not lipid dependent, but it likes them. So it will grow very well in those greasy areas. So you want to kind of normalize that skin and reduce inflammation. And then you can drop down to more emollient shampoos that have, you know, maybe a little bit of oils or, you know, less drying to restore and protect the skin more. And, and conditioners you might use to do that as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so to get that skin barrier function back. But for the average pet owner who thinks, I just like to have a clean dog and I want to bathe them once a week, is that anything to be concerned about? With, you I know, use very mild shampoos mm-hmm. and assess. If they have, are in a very dry climate mm-hmm. or have a very dry air in their house in the winter from the, all the central heating and things, you may find that, that that's too frequent. Maybe every other week works better. Mm-hmm. I think most normal dogs will tolerate a weekly bath with mild shampoos that are meant for dogs okay i wouldn't use human shampoos on them human shampoos tend to be much harsher and and the only time we use human shampoos is when they contain an ingredient we need to get rid of an infection i see yeah we got lots of antifungal shampoos now in our pet for our Uh pet and lots of others so we don't have to use human shampoos very often Mm -hmm. um so i would say with bathing you know, it's sure if they go out and get dirty, they need a bath. If they smell, they need a bath. If they feel a little greasy, yeah, maybe they need a bath. Mm-hmm. Um, well, probably not more than once a week if everything's normal. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, sounds good. Less is, less is more. <laughs> right, right. You know, I, I would get really wound up about, you know, bathing frequency too much. If you're using really mild products, you're using lukewarm water, not hot water, you're not rubbing really hard and damaging those hair follicles, which is one of the things that can happen and actually can can cause a folliculitis. Mm. 
infection of those hair follicles. And we've seen that sometimes at these um, commercial bathing centers, people have gone to, and maybe they've really scrubbed the hot dogs hard. I have never used one of those commercial centers, but if the spray is really hard when you're rinsing them, you want to you know, you might be more like pressure washing your dog, <laughs> driving stuff in to the follicles. So, you know, we want to be gentle. Okay. A gentle bathing with, you know, lukewarm water and use products for dogs. And, you know, probably once a week is going to be fine. The show dogs, I know that they're probably using, you know, fairly gentle shampoos for the most part. And they're using conditioners and they're doing all kinds of things to ameliorate that. And yeah. they're probably not bathing much more than once a week. I can't imagine showing much more than once a week. That's anyway. true. It's yeah. probably a distinct time period where they're bathing more, not really all yeah. year long. Yeah, but it's what you see. You know, if the dogs are getting flaky, cut back a little bit. Okay. Um, yeah. Do we have time for one more question? Sure. Okay. I'm wondering about staining. So you see some dogs that are pristine white and other cream white dogs that have um, orange or brown around their muzzle. Maybe the, the paws are have an orange tint and sometimes they're on the anus. There's like some staining. Um, is that from licking, from saliva, from an allergy, or is that just the way some dogs are? Well, if dogs lick their paws a lot, white dogs licking their paws, their paws will go brown. There are porphyrins in the saliva and, it, and you know, with exposure to light and things, it turns brown. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tears. There's porphyrin in the tears. So the dogs whose tear ducts don't, oh, aren't big enough and the tears overflow or there's some inflammation there and the tears are overflowing, they'll get the brown staining around the eyes. Um, and so, you know, there's, there are, it, it is an indication around the anus. Yeah, he's probably licking back there around the prepuce. Um, yeah, he's probably licking there. So it's an indication that the dog is licking the feet. Maybe you're not seeing it. Maybe he's doing it in private. Mm -hmm. you know, cats are really bad about doing things in private. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah that, that's really, you know, just an indication that he's probably been licking there a lot. Okay. And so around the mouth, it's just saliva staining and food and bullets. Mm -hmm. You can't help the mouth area. <laughs> yeah, a little harder. Yeah. But it's, again, to do with the saliva. Okay. Well, Dr. Barbette, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with our audience. Oh, you're welcome. I hope it helps people uh, figure out what's going on or when, when they need to see a specialist. And um, I can direct them to the American College of Veterinary Dermatology website, acvd.org. And they have on their public um, page, the front page, they'll have a little uh, place where you can find a dermatologist. You just click on that and you can put in what city or what area you're in, and they can tell you who's practicing dermatology as specialists in, you know, in the, as near as possible to your areas as they might be. You know, mostly in the bigger towns and cities yeah we'll put that in our show notes for sure so people can click click right through to that well and thank you so much and have a wonderful week yeah and you Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics for guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. 
Also, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page, as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.